Hello and welcome to Stories of Scotland in this wonderful winter season themed on ideas of the north. I'm Annie, a frosty archivist inside a wardrobe. And I'm Jenny, a 23 and a half metre watertight Viking longship. <laughs> <laughs> and in this episode, we're going back to Scandinavian Scotland to explore the Norse mythology of the north of Scotland. These are the stories brought by Viking warriors and Norse settlers who held significant control in the north and west of Scotland in the medieval period. Yes, so we have varying degrees of Norse power in medieval Scotland, and really famous examples being Shetland and Orkney, which were under Norse rule until 1472. And these islands are now tremendously proud of their Viking heritage. However, there were Norse strongholds all along the north and west coast of Scotland, as we can see by the scattering of Norse place names. And with the Norse and the Vikings, we see some really brilliant mythology developing around the coasts of the Atlantic. Scandinavian legends mix with those of the Gaels to create some very surreal worlds. So let's unravel some of these mead-soaked superstitions. <laughs> They're very sticky. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so our first Norse mythology is a bit of an origin story of the Vikings coming to Shetland. Now, this is a mixture of the old mythology and a kind of folk history, and it blends together to give you a wonderful fictional account of the Vikings in the north of Scotland. Just because it's a bit fantastical doesn't mean it has to be fictional, Annie. Just because you don't believe in magic doesn't mean it's not swirling around us all the time. Mm. <laughs> Well, we will start in reality, Jenny. We're in Shetland in the late Iron Age. So this is roughly between 400 and 800 Common Era, or AD if you're old-fashioned. Yes, and it means we're seeing Pictish folks at work. Now, there's not really much of a written archive that we can examine for late Iron Age Shetland, but there is a wealth of archaeology. Yes, Iron Age Shetland is very mysterious, but there's the stunningly preserved Musa Broch, a kind of round house tower, and Old Skatness, which is a pick and mix of some of the most intriguing structures throughout time. But the one thing we can say about Iron Age Shetland is that they were very, very skilled at building things with rock that would last a really, really, really long time. Yes, but when Shetland shores are attacked by Vikings, where do the Pictish peoples go? Well, this tale answers that, because in this story, the Picts, these folks who built some amazing and very heavy and large stone buildings by hand, also happen to be very, very small. Well, you see, Annie, the Vikings were terrifying and ruthless warriors. They had a culture and religion that placed the focus of their essence of being on being a brave warrior and fighting to the very end. Just think of their afterlife in Valhalla, which was seen as a majestic afterlife for those who died in combat. They landed on Shetland's coast with the element of surprise and would take what they wanted. So what were the picks to do, Annie? You would be a fool to stay and fight a longship worth of Vikings. It's better to run and hide and be alive than to find yourself face to face with a Norse sword. 
So the pics did what any sensible and slightly scared person would do. Play dead. They just lay <laughs> on the ground. <laughs> I'm not sure the Vikings will be tricked by that one. Hmm. I thought maybe they wouldn't be able to see past their beards down to the ground. <laughs> Especially if they're all windswept after a couple days after being at sea. No, Jenny, I don't think this tactic is going to work. You see, the legends of Shetland tell us that the picks were quite short. I actually found this piece of folklore described in the Shetland Times 117 years ago. In pre-Norse times there dwelt in Shetland a small race of people, semi-civilised, unwarlike, called the Picts. And to these people we owe the building of the brochs. These brochs must be the dwelling places of the fairies. So the Shetland Times is connecting the idea that the Picts are little and also potentially magic and so very good at hiding. Hmm. Now, when the Vikings came, the Picts hid in crevices along the coasts. They hid in remote caves and under the land itself. Hmm. And the Picts began to live their lives in the shadows, hiding from Norse settlers. They had their freedom from the Norse, but they lived in the cover of darkness at night. If they were hungry, they could sneak up to the byres or fields of the Norse settlers and steal a bucket of milk or a lovely woolly sheep. Now, the Norse folks were very superstitious, and if they went to milk a cow and she had no milk, then they would assume it was the trows. You see, in their homeland, they were aware of the trolls. However, they got a new upgraded name in this new land, mm. the trows. And so this legend develops. The beliefs in the hidden picks or the trows, or the hill folk, as they were also known, they began to develop even more magical power. They're no longer just cowards hiding in the dark cracks in the earth. They are akin to the fae, with growing supernatural abilities. And they are putting up a resistance to the Norse settlers, as these picks remembered when the land belonged to them. And so... If a farmer was ploughing a field, they would leave a part of their crop unharvested so that it could be taken by one of the wee free hill folk, the picks or the trows. And this unharvested land was called the Devil's Corner. Wow, so the trows actually got turned from picts into sort of fairies into almost something devilish and mischievous, you know? I think the reason that it was called the Devil's Corner is not because they're seeing the trowels as being um, particularly evil. It's just that in this medieval period, anything that wasn't explained by the church and considered to be a bit supernatural or magic would bear some kind of association with the devil. Mm, okay. But I find the idea of the Picts, of these, this real group of people being very small, magical beings, as absolutely fascinating. Because there's a lot of archaeological evidence that does make Picts look small. The example <laughs> being that on a lot of their buildings, they're very small doors. However, they were absolutely normal-sized folks. 
they were just very sensible not to build a big drafty door when they were on a small exposed island. Mm. And a lot of the archaeological remains are half underground, so it makes sense for the mythological stories of Picts to develop about people being a kind of subterranean community. But the lore that develops around the Picts, then becoming we fairy type trowel folks is just absolutely brilliant ah yes annie well the real picts may have been normal stone age people but then they became the trows annie you gotta keep up and the trows are small so over time they shrunk (laughs) themselves down to avoid the norse and as they shrunk down all that big human energy got pushed down into the small trow energy and that made them fizzly and magical and that is my theory Fizzly and magical. Yes, I imagine uh, 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 them tasting like refreshers if you were to eat them. Like a little sherbet sweet in your mouth. Like a sherbet lemon. <laughs> the most magical of boiled sweets. <laughs> the most magical of hard candies. Well, there's a lot of folklore speculation that this story shows that the real late Iron Age people of Shetland lived alongside the Vikings, first moving to the cusps of the islands and then reintegrating. Nah, it's far more likely that they just went, you know what, these people aren't for us, let's just shrink down and become wee magical trows. What better way to defend yourselves against pirates and pillagers than becoming a tiny, knee-height, supernatural hillfolk and hiding under the ground? That is my... <laughs> after after playing dead, that is my second... That is my <laughs> second technique to survive. <laughs> and the trows developed refined tastes once they had shrunk down and got used to their new, smaller way of life. And they were famed for their good-tasted music. It's even said that some of the best tunes from Shetland were gifts from the Trows. Now, this wasn't the only gift from the Trows to the humans of Shetland. There's an old legend about some magical stones. Oh, all stones are magical, Annie. Geology is the true wizard of deep time. <laughs> well, this story was told by James Lawrenson a fisherman, registrar and crofter from Shetland. Wow. And he heard it from his granny and it tells of some particularly magical stones. Mm. You see, they wholeheartedly believed in witchcraft in the old days. And one way that an everyday person could become a witch was through accepting a gift from a trow. One such incident happened to a good woman, Christian Ganson, but she went by the name Kirsty. She was from Colvin Stoft in Fetlar, a farmstead facing northwards towards the rugged sea. Fetlar is one of Shetland's islands on the northwest and has some of the greenest, richest, finest lands on all of the isles. But she was due to marry a man from Hubi, which is the main settlement on Fetlar. Before she left for her wedding, a neighbour, a lovely wee old woman, who felt very fondly for her, wanted to give her a special wedding gift. But she didn't have much. However, she did have a family heirloom that was very, very precious. And so, as she was old, she decided she didn't need this anymore, and she wanted to pass it on to Kirsty. It wasn't money, but it was in some ways better than money. And as she gave it to Kirsty, she warned her that it was a sacred artifact. It was two pebbles. But not just any pebbles, no. These were mystical, magical pebbles. If you held them up in the sunlight, they would glint all nice and shiny. One was a gorgeous, smooth, rich yellow colour, and the other was a creamy white. 
The yellow was a butter stone and the white was a milk stone. The woman's ancestors had been given these magical stones by the trows, the magical hill folk. The wee old woman told Kirsty the same words her ancestors had been told by the trows from the hills. These stones could be used to cast a spell in hard times to get either milk or, that's right, butter. She was to put the stone in a pan of water and gently heat it, before turning it three times sunwise, and then to point it with tongs in the direction of her best cow, which could be difficult if her best cow was running up and down the field at that moment in time. <laughs> when she did have it located on the cow, she was to say the ritual words, Taka fe until eyes teen. White milk blah, de from da bean. Now this means, take all from until all is taken. White milk below you from the bone. Wonderful magical fingers there, Annie. Big fan. It means that the stone would fill the pan with milk or butter, as though it had come fresh from the udders of the loveliest cow in the field. To stop the spell again, she was to repeat the ritual, but turn the stone against the movement of the sun, which would have been counterclockwise. Now, after a wee while of living in Hubie, young Kirsty found herself the owner of a beautiful cow, which she called Kubi. <laughs> however, <laughs> however, this cow was not very dedicated to making milk. Her cow had other priorities and was very indifferent to Kirsty's hunger. That's when Kirsty remembered the magical trow stones and so decided for the first time to try casting the spell that the old woman told her about. They felt strange in her hands, as she was very religious, and she did not like the thought of ancient magic. But she couldn't resist. And lo and behold, they worked. And Kirsty found herself with plentiful milk and butter. She had all the dairy of her dreams, and that was a fair <laughs> amount of dairy, let me tell you. <laughs> However, all of a sudden... Kirsty's neighbour could get no milk from her finest cow, and she had hungry bairns to feed. She was in despair, and after a few days, she decided to go to the minister of the Kirk. You see, this was very unlike her cow, and she suspected that witchcraft was stealing the milk out of her cow. However, when she was asked who she suspected, she said that it couldn't possibly be Kirsty, as she knew that Kirsty was a good church-going woman. But when this came down the grapevine and Kirsty heard this, after getting all her delicious, creamy, witchy milk, she felt dreadfully bad. So she buried the stones in her garden and never used them again. What do you know? The milk returned to her neighbour's coo, and Kirsty never played with trow magic again. Wow, Jenny. Mm. That is a brilliant story. Dinner be going turning your magic stones now or else the coo will get dry <laughs> as a bone. <laughs> well, it's a really common accusation of witchcraft, both in mythology and in genuine witch trials. Mm. Back then they would call it stealing the profit from the cow, when you're essentially stealing the milk from the neighbour's cow. Um, but then it also ties into the trowels stealing the milk from the Vikings when they were coming at night time. So mm. it's, it's got this lovely continuity. Well, if there's one thing that I have learned through doing this podcast with you, Annie, it's that there is a very close connection between witchcraft and cheese. <laughs> <laughs> Just cauldrons, cauldrons full of fondue. 
no bone deficiencies back then. Uh uh-uh. uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, when the trows aren't giving folks magic and dairy, they can be found in the ancient ruins. The Shetland Times of 1903 finds a connection between the ancient architecture of the island and the supernatural picked trowel fairy friends. An incident which came under my notice some years ago may illustrate this tendency to convert the merely unusual into the supernatural. Be pleased, then, to picture in imagination a lovely moonlit night the silvery orb of night flooding the bay, the ness with its old Pict's house, the sleepy vale with her softest, most dreamy light. Suddenly, the balmy air was made vocal with the sweet strains of the fiddle. Dancing feet kept time with the music, which hovered for the space of many minutes over the grass-grown runes out in Ness. A regal feast was had there, for fancy, truly, to this day you still hear people telling of the wonderful night the fairies held around the broch. And I will think of this whenever I see a broch. Happy fairies throwing parties inside. Lovely magical cheese parties. <laughs> Norse expansion into the North Atlantic happened around 700 to 800 Common Era. And what did they find on their way westwards but Shetland, sitting right in the middle of their Viking sea road? Annie, how long do you think it took the Vikings to row the 202 miles from the western coast of Norway to the shores of Shetland? Well, the Vikings would be highly skilled at sea and would probably be able to get to Scotland in anything from a few days to maybe a week. And the Vikings were very tactical, so they would be setting off with good wind behind them and pray that the good weather stays. That was actually a very close answer, Annie. It took them two days on average to reach Shetland, um, which I had no idea. I'll be honest with you, I thought it would take them like a month. I honestly thought, (laughs) I thought they were on the ocean for ages, but no, it was just a hop and a skip across to Shetland. (sighs) I mean, you... Obviously, you can't fit that many provisions in a Viking longship, Look, can you? I wasn't thinking about the logistics of it, Annie, all right? <laughs> I was thinking that if I had to row, it would probably take me a month. Um, <laughs> and what we know is that they sailed this route often, as it took them to the Western Isles of Scotland, and this lonely group of islands that is Shetland was an obvious place to rest, recoup, and of course, raid! Yay! Yay, raiding Scotland. (laughs) Now, we don't actually know much about how the Norse took control of Shetland. It could have been a very lovely, peaceful integration or a total wipeout of the indigenous locals. What we do know is that within a few generations of their arrival, the islands were completely Norse-speaking and all the place names were Norse. Well, Jenny, the Vikings aren't exactly known for their peaceful negotiation skills. Mm, I would say that the Vikings likely established their control through force, which would have been really violent. Mm. Um, It's a colonisation, really, because they replaced the indigenous culture with the Norse language and laws. However, the Norse settlers that then come along and integrate with the locals... They, they kind of just hang up their axes and pick up their barley seeds and become 
happy farmers. Well, yes, and the violence of the initial raids certainly fits with the tale that was told by Robert Irvine, a Shetland native from Aswick on the main island. He was born in 1879, and when he was 95 years old, he told this tale. His father was also incredibly long-lived, so this is a tale that was passed down generations and stretches back hundreds of years into the past. Aswick is nestled on the eastern coast of Shetland and would have been a prime target for Viking raids. The people of Aswick, however, and many of the other settlements had a tactic for warning each other about approaching Viking longships. Watchtowers. These towers were built on ward hills and when Vikings were spotted, a fire would be lit in them, giving the locals time to collect their belongings and run inland. Kind of like the warning beacons of Gondor in Lord of the Rings, only instead of ring wraiths and orcs, it was overflowing boats of testosterone filled with burly bearded Vikings. But sadly, sometimes the warning fires weren't enough to protect the locals. On one such occasion, a long ship of Vikings landed and out clambered 35 ravenous Vikings. They charged their way to a nearby farm of a wee old woman. Now this wee old wind-worn lady had only one coo, and oh how she loved this cow. Not only was it a wonderful listener, it was also the source of her livelihood, for despite her apparent frailness, she could churn up a mighty good butter. But the Vikings cared not, and ignoring her anguished cries, they tore her beloved coo from her hands. But the elder of the town was present, and he saw his good pal have her good bovine pal robbed from her, so he bellowed down to the Vikings. You who consume the flesh of a stolen beast will be consumed in turn. Oh, curse from an elder. We don't want to be messing with that. No, we do not, Annie. But the Vikings didn't speak angry Shetlander. Or if they did, they didn't listen. That is but for two younger lads who heeded the warning. And when the cow was killed and cooked that night down on the beach... These two Vikings were the only ones who did not eat the meat of the stolen coo. The following morning was eerily serene. The seas were a mirror of the cloudless sky. Having filled their bellies and terrified the locals, the Vikings got back in their boat, ready to head out on the seas and continue their raiding mission round the isles. But as soon as the first oar broke the water, clouds started to roll in. At first they were white and fluffy, but they became darker with every downbeat and angrier with every upbeat. By the time the Vikings were a fair way from the shore, the winds were so wild that they could barely be seen above the waves, and an almighty thunder ripped through the air. While everyone on the islands had run for cover, there stood two figures on the watchtower. The elder and the old woman watched as the Viking longship was torn apart by the waves. When the storm had cleared, two Vikings washed up barely alive on the shore. It was the youths who had listened to the warning, knowing that a curse had been bestowed upon the cow's meat. When asked what had happened to their boat, they told of how all the men had been pulled to the bottom of the ocean as if weighted down by the cursed coo's flesh in their bellies. Oh, they could have been weighted down by their weapons and their guilt from stealing the cow, but yeah, (laughs) definitely, definitely the curse. Yep. Well, Jenny, I think the marvel of this story is not to steal a beloved cow from anyone. And I think that is probably the one rule everyone can take through life with them. 
Thank you, Shetland, for <laughs> teaching us that one. <laughs> We couldn't discuss Viking mythology in the north of Scotland without speaking about the sagas. Yes, many of the Icelandic and Nordic sagas include Scotland within them. These long and intricate writings tell the tales of the Nordic past and don't miss out any of the nasty bits. In fact, they seem to go out of their way to get as many nasty bits in as physically possible. (laughs) Yes. Well, the Scaldic sagas are a really important part of Norse culture. It's an oral history of their greatest achievements. The sagas explain the lives of the greatest leaders and warriors, their accomplishments in the battlefields, and the legends that intertwined with their existences. They are also really rich in family history and tales of their ancestors. And I love to think of a Viking version of Who Do You Think You Are? when a skald just comes out and explains in beautiful poetic form the raging battle where your (laughs) uncle Eric got his injury. (laughs) Anyway, sagas serve many purposes as a historical record of the past, but also as an amazing entertainment to be recited with lots of mead and joy. Well, the poem that we are intrigued by is the Darali Thriog, of the Njal saga. This saga tells the history of the Norse people over an 80-year period in the late 10th and early 11th centuries. And a little warning here, this is a pretty dark poem, so if you've got wee bairns listening, it might be best to just skip to a happier episode as this saga gets a bit grisly. In this saga, Dorod, a local of Caithness, which is at the very, very northeast tip of Scotland, is walking along a beach on Good Friday morning, which was the 23rd of April in the year 1014. But this would prove to be a not-so-good Friday. On the horizon, Dorod sees 12 ghostly figures on horses galloping towards him. But before they quite reach him, they disappear inland. And so, Dorod hurries after them, keen to see where they're galloping to. He hides in some bushes as he watches twelve haggard women enter a small hovel. When the door is closed behind the last, Torrid hurries down to a window and peeks inside. And what he sees and hears makes him realise that he is watching the Valkyries weave on their loom of death. Blood rains from the cloudy web on the broad loom of slaughter. The web of men, grey as armour, is now being woven. The Valkyries will cross it with the crimson weft. The warp is made of human entrails. Human heads are used as weights. The heddle rods are blood-wet spears. The shafts are iron-bound, the arrows are the shuttles. With swords we will weave this web of battle. The Valkyries go weaving with drawn swords, Hild and Hjortrimul, Sangrid and Swipul. Spears will shatter, shields will splinter, Swords will gnaw like wolves through armour. 
you know, Annie, I am all for a good group craft session, but this one is just a little bit too much for me. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> I love this poem because it just has such a good understanding of the weaving process. <laughs> And I've managed to apply it to almost any material. But anyway, Valkyries are powerful and supernatural women who are loyal to the god Odin. And Valkyries get to decide who will live and who will die during battles. Now the 12 Valkyries in this poem are weaving a web of human entrails on a loom made of bloodied swords, spears, and severed human heads. Which is truly horrible. And quite frankly, I would not want to get that shawl as a Christmas present. (laughs) Nah, Jenny, don't worry. Red isn't really your colour anyway. (laughs) Now in this woven tapestry of battle, they read who will be slaughtered in the upcoming conflict of Contorf, which was being fought at the same time the Valkyries appeared to Dovid. Only this battle wasn't in Caithness. It was across the sea, on the outskirts of Dublin in Ireland. And spoiler alert, turns out they were weaving a big old shawl of death as pretty much everybody died in this battle. It is estimated that between 7,000 and 10,000 men were killed. And that includes every side's leaders and their sons and even their grandsons in one case. The battle was between predominantly Irish forces and predominantly Norse forces. The Norse army was a coalition of Irish Norse and Orkney Norse warriors. The leader of the Orkney Norse was a fellow called Sigurd the Stout, Earl of Orkney. Yes, and Sigurd's domain included Caithness and much of the Northern Highlands, which explains why the Valkyries appeared to David so far from the battle site itself. And this saga, which has a man from Caithness envision the fates deciding the deaths of those in battle way across the sea in Ireland, is a wonderful example proving the vast reach of the Norse people. Scotland features in many sagas, and I find this one particularly wonderful because though it's dreadfully gruesome, it features these powerful witch-like Valkyrie women weaving Their loom is a metaphor for the lives of men, and this representation of supernatural women in literature giving prophecies is something that returns again and again, from Shakespeare's Macbeth to Lord of the Rings. Vikings took over the North Sea with their longships, navigational skills and merciless brutality, and they settled around the coasts and islands of Scotland, Ireland, Northern Europe, Iceland, and even made journeys as far as northern Canada and southern Italy. We think about Scandinavian Scotland, the era when Scotland was under Norse influence, lasting roughly from the 8th to 15th century, but it was in significant decline by the 13th century. Scots' power over what we know as modern-day Scotland was clawed back through battle, negotiations and settling debts, It was a long and messy process, likely involving a lot of death weaving. And in the end, the Scots won out. But this doesn't mean that the Norse influence of Scotland was eradicated. We can still see it today in many places up north. Orkney, Shetland and Caithness are still very proud of their Norse roots, 
Both of the island groups and the county have flags with the Nordic cross in varying colours and they can be seen fluttering gently in the gale force winds of the Atlantic. Yes, when we think about Norse mythology, it's easy to go straight to the bloodthirsty Valkyries. However, I really love the stories of the Picts becoming trows, strange, weird, little fairy-like creatures, both mischievous yet music-loving, milk-stealing and brock-partying. One of my favourite things about the stories we've spoken about today is how many cows and milks feature in the Norse Scots lore. As cattle are clearly such a prized possession to our ancient ancestors. I just don't think enough historians spend enough time talking about how precious cows were to the people of the past. I think there's probably enough on that, I'll be honest. <laughs> I think you just covered it pretty well, Annie. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode on Stories of Norse Scotland. We've had a lot of fun exploring this world of mythology and uh, murdering. And a big thank you to Carol and Trinda for joining our Patreon family. If you'd like to help support us as we research, write and record this fun little show, then you too can become a patron. Just go to www.patreon.com slash stories of Scotland to subscribe and support, as well as getting some wonderful little tidbits of folklore, mythology and things Annie won't let me put in the episode. <laughs> There's only so much gore we can have in any of the episodes, Jenny. <laughs> and probably and, on the Patreon as well. <laughs> <laughs> you can also support us by leaving a wonderful review for us. We would particularly like reviews that tell us how much you love your cows. <laughs> and if you don't have a cow, you can tell us how much you love us. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Stories of Scotland. Slanjava. Slanjava.